If you would take your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. While you're turning there, in this portion of the text, we will be referring to what Dave read to us in Genesis chapter 28 with Jacob and his dream, the vision that God gave to him of a ladder, a flight of steps, and upon it ascending and descending the angels from the Lord. It's an amazing story. Jacob was sleeping with his head on a slab of stone. And God gave him that vision. I don't know if you know the history of this, but there is a stone today in England um, that tradition says is the very stone that Jacob slept on. It's a slab of limestone that was carried by a man named Columba to the island of Iona where he kept and, and stored many different relics from, from Palestine. He was called the warrior saint, um, Columba, Saint Columba. He was a great man. God used him mightily to br- really bring the gospel to Scotland. Anyway, so it's called the Stone of Scone. Now, you all like to eat scones. Hopefully, your scones don't taste like a stone. But it's called the Stone of Scone. It's about this big, about that thick. It's a slab of limestone. And um, it is the stone that is set into the throne of every king of England when he is coronated. And a part of that coronation ceremony refers back to this oath that God, or that Jacob brought to the Lord. Anyway, this is some history. probably has nothing to do. It's probably not the real stone. It's a tradition. But anyway, if you ever hear of the stone of scone, that's what it is. It's considered by tradition to be the stone that Jacob slept on. And it's just interesting to think about how the nation of Israel really sought to preserve into its Judeo-Christian values a biblical link to this reality that it is in God that all the nations of the earth are blessed. And apart from God, we are cursed. And um, they sought to really be an inheritor of that faith that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Here we look at under the fig tree. Look with me at the text. Jesus has called his first disciples to himself, a man named Andrew Probably not, uh, probably John, although he is not named in the text, as we studied last week. And then Andrew first goes and finds his own brother, a man named Simon. And Andrew brings him to Jesus. Interesting, when Will Graham was speaking to us the other night, he referred to this text with this concept of bring a friend. Bring a friend. And how Andrew was that man, as we looked at last week, who was known for introducing people to Jesus. He goes and he first finds Simon, his brother. When he walks up to the Lord, the Lord looks at him and says, I'm changing your name. You are Cephas in the Aramaic or Peter in the Greek. The next day... Jesus decides to travel to Galilee. Depending where he is, we don't know exactly where he is, but depending on where he is, this is maybe a three-day walk. 
Uh, it's not like you just got on the bus and got there. It's like about a three-day journey. Jesus decides to go to Galilee. Obviously, he knows that there is going to be a wedding in Cana up in Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples have been invited to it, and we're going to look at that next week when Jesus performs his first miracle at the bidding of his mother. We'll look at that text. Before he does, he finds Philip. He says to Philip, now notice that he finds Philip. He goes and searches him out. As he does us. He finds Philip. He says to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. In the Synoptic Gospels, we find that Andrew and Peter are based out of Capernaum. Because at Capernaum and the synagogue there where they routinely worship, and near the synagogue where they routinely worship in Capernaum, Peter has a house. And so probably the reference here is not that these guys all lived currently in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is just across the Jordan along the upper reaches of the Sea of Galilee. But that is probably the birthplace of these men. Although they have moved and now are living at Capernaum, and from Capernaum they have established a fishing enterprise. But Philip is from Bethsaida, the same city, the same region. And so all these guys come from the same area. It was Andrew and Peter. Philip then goes and finds a man, a friend. His name is Nathaniel. Now, if you take the three listings of the 12 apostles that are given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you sit down and you write all those guys out, you will find out that Nathaniel also has another name. It is Bartholomew. So, Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same guy. These two guys, Philip and Nathaniel, Philip and Bartholomew, do not factor or figure heavily in anything in the New Testament. There is another Philip, we suppose it's another Philip, um, that is mentioned in the book of Acts. Of course, you have Philip who becomes what many regard as a first deacon in chapter 6. But then in chapter 8, and later in the book of Acts, you have this guy called Philip the Evangelist. And you see him going to Samaria and bringing in great revival as he preaches there. That Philip in the book of Acts is probably not this Philip. It's probably the guy in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6. So neither one of these guys factor big into the narrative. Nothing like Peter. In fact, we know very little about them, except what we read here. And so he goes and he first finds Nathaniel and he says to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That is not a denial of the virgin birth. That is just a statement of the known reality 
as people would have known Jesus. This isn't a theological statement. It's just the reality in which Jesus has been raised. He's the son of Joseph. Nathaniel says to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. He said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now notice right from the get-go at this part of the text, we're going to see woven into the story a reference to the Jacob story. In Genesis chapter 28. Jacob was who? The tricker. Jacob was the deceiver. A man with no deceit. And he's coming to Jesus. And Nathanael said to him, or excuse me, yeah, behold an Israel indeed, whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you had your experience, like Jacob had his experience on a stone, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, not on a flight of steps. On what? Or who? On me. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Lord, as we just enter into this story and the many unknowns and the many mysteries that are in it, I pray that you would help us to enter into the story in our own individual stories of how you have found us and where you found us, under what fig tree, whatever it was. When you brought us to a crisis point of faith, when you brought us to a, maybe a time of doubt, maybe a time of turmoil, maybe a, a searching because of a failure, maybe a triumph in our life, whatever the case, and we came under this fig tree where we saw you. And Lord, maybe there's someone here that's never had that fig tree. Lord, I pray that you would set the stage in their life so that they would come and see. And we look to your Holy Spirit to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I imagine it is hard to imagine a man with a more humble beginning than Abe Lincoln. Raised in poverty, born into abject poverty on the frontier of Kentucky, 
1809, living in a log cabin with a dirt floor. Mother dies. Dad takes him. They move to Indiana. And there in the Indian Territory, Indiana, he raises his children. He was a man who experienced horrible ups and downs. He was a store clerk. He was a driver of oxen along the canals. He entered into petty politics in Illinois, went into law, eventually, surprisingly, nominated to be the Republican candidate as the President of the United States of America. More humble beginnings, it's hard to imagine. And yet he was a man who was uniquely prepared and situated to guide this nation through its most calamitous time. He was able to articulate in terms and in ways truths that kept us going as a people. I don't know if you still do it, but when I was in school, not only did we have to walk uphill to school both ways and home in a blizzard and everything else, no, I'm just joking, but when I went to school, we had to memorize the Gettysburg Address. I hope they still do. I can't get it right. I can get part of it. Like the verses I memorized, I can always get the beginning. You know, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition all men are created equal. His second inaugural is a masterpiece. In that address to the nation, he said these words, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. And then as he elaborates and developed his speech, he says these moving words, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And then he was assassinated almost fittingly, on Good Friday.
to a greater degree, our Savior would have humble written over his birth. A descendant of David, for sure. But Jesus of Nazareth. Probably a dirt floor. Probably not a cabin. There weren't enough trees. Humble. When we consider the story that is in front of us, we have to think about Galilee of the Gentiles, and we have to think about Nazareth. Notice what's going on here. It tells us right in the text, when Jesus deciding to go to Galilee, he gathers to himself a man named Philip. He says to him, follow me. Philip is from Galilee. Think with me of a map. Let's think about the Sea of Galilee. Let's draw a map, okay? So here we have Israel. Sea of Galilee... Jordan River, Jordan Rift, Dead Sea. Transjordan, cross the Jordan, in a region called Perea. On this side, let's put this coast out here and put the Mediterranean in here. On this side, we have Judah in the south, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee in the north. We have lower Galilee and we have upper Galilee. The Jordan River comes in, and if we go further enough, we got the Mount Hermon up here, snow-capped mountain to the north that feeds the Jordan River, snow-capped year-round. In fact, I've been reading the book about Benjamin Netanyahu. Have you seen that new book out there? Somebody gave it to me from the church. I've been reading through it. During the wars, when he was fighting, he was a part of the different units that were, uh, I guess you would say, special forces units. And um, once, when they were ascending Mount Hermon to drive the Syrians off the peak of the mountain, they almost froze to death up there, and many of the men in his unit came home with extreme frostbite after having suffered up on that mountain extensively in that battle. It was a brutal, it's a brutal place, and it has a very brutal climate up on the top of Mount Hermon. So when you think about Jordan Rift, and you think about the Jordan River, remember, it is kind of like... Our mountains, Mount Hermon, feeding the rivers that go out into the desert country of the American West, although obviously it's not nearly as big an area. Lower Galilee, down in here, you have a valley that sits off Mount Carmel and some other mountains, and it is called the Valley of Jezreel. What's going to happen in the Valley of Jezreel? Somebody's going to come back to it. There's going to be a big battle there called the Battle of Armageddon. Capernaum is here. Bethsaida is here. They are fishing villages that sit here in Galilee of the Gentiles. But Jesus is raised in Nazareth, if you can see through all my chicken scratch, which sits on a hill above the Valley of Jezreel. It's interesting to think that when Jesus was a child, he could climb the hill behind his house. And from the hill behind his house, he could see the Sea of Galilee, he could see the Mediterranean, and he could see the Valley of Jezreel, where one day he will return as a conquering king of kings. You could see it all. So this is where Jesus is raised. This place, Nazareth. 
Galilee of the Gentiles. I want you to go with me to John chapter 7. Flip over there for a minute. I want to read to you some verses that show you how the Jews of Jesus' day regard it. Now, even to think about how provincial people are, kind of like us, Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he says what? Can anything good come out of it? He's not from anywhere like, you know, upstanding himself. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, though, that provincial thing. It's kind of like when I lived in Cody, we looked down the road and said, can anything good come out of Pal? Right? Anything, you know, and, you know, nothing good can come out of Pal. And from here, if you're from Star Valley, it's, can anything good come out of Jackson? Right? Can anything good come out of Jackson? Sorry if you came out of here. We think you're really good. <laughs> Keep coming. But you know what the feeling is like. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Think of how provincial people can be. But notice how provincial Judeans, we're talking about people from Judah, which is down here, are towards people up here. Now, we know they did what towards the people in between? They hated them. They hated the Samaritans. In fact, when you would go from one to the other, a good Jew didn't even walk right that way. He did what? He crossed the Jordan River and went up that way. That's looking like a lot of chicken scratch. I'm sorry, but he went around them because they hated them. They looked down on them. Now, if you were a Galilean, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was pretty close. Notice John chapter 7. Let's start reading. I think it's in verse 42. When they heard these words, some of the people said, verse 40, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, we know from Luke chapter 2, we know how to clear that up, right? If you don't know how to do that, make sure you go to Luke chapter 2 and read that. So although Jesus grows up in Nazareth, he was not born in Nazareth. He was born born according to the scriptures, as it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in Bethlehem. And God got him there through a decree of taxation. So God even uses taxes. And then from there, Jesus goes to where? Egypt. And then Mary and Joseph take him back to Nazareth. That's the reality, although these people may not have always been aware of that. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people about him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to him, Why did not you bring him? The officers then answered and said, No one ever spoke the way this man does. The Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. He's talking about the Galileans. 
Nicodemus, who had gone to him in chapter 3, becomes a secret disciple of Jesus, as we'll see later in the text, who is a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body, he's one of them, says to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they said to him, are you from Galilee too? Search and see. No prophet comes from Galilee. The Jews of Jesus' day did not revere Galileans. Now let's consider some ways that there were distinctions between Judeans and Galileans. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we just read them, they're all Jews, it's just a monolithic group. The reality, it is not. Think with me of the history. We need to do this real quick because of time. But if you think of the history, all the 12 tribes of Israel come through Jacob and through his sons. When they come into the land, they are given tribal allotments. They live in those allotments all the way through the Davidic monarchy, through Solomon, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, during his days, there is a civil war and the nation splits. There is then formed a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans in three waves take the Judeans in exile to Babylon. And they stay there for 70 years. And then under Cyrus, they return. The northern kingdom, those ten tribes, though, in 722. Now, this sounds crazy to us, but 722 was before 586. Right? Not when they lived, but the way we do the calendar. Okay? So when you hear 722 B.C., you're thinking of things that happened prior. The Assyrians, under a guy named Sennacherib, come into the ten tribes and demolish them because they have disobeyed God and they have embraced idolatry. And Sennacherib does something different than Nebuchadnezzar does. Everyone who survives is taken into exile, but not to Babylon, nor to one city. Instead, they are scattered like the wind through the entire known world of his day. They become what we know as the diaspora or the dispersion. Those Jews never return as a unit to Israel. The Judeans do. That is why even though Jesus is a descent or is living in Nazareth in Galilee, he is actually from what tribe? Judah. As were most Galileans. Most Galileans were not from the tribe of Asher or Zebulun or Naphtali, although that was the tribal allotment. Most of them are Judean. 
And so we have Jews scattered through the whole known world. Now, Galileans were known. Here's seven things that separate them. Number one, Galilee was settled predominantly by the Gentiles. The big cities in Galilee are not Jewish. Tiberias is the ruling center. It sits in southern Galilee on the sea. It is inhabited almost exclusively by Gentiles. Uh, There are other towns on all the trade routes, big towns. They are Gentile to the core. It is the villages up in the hills that are inhabited by Jews. So this is a region that is predominantly controlled by the Gentiles, not by the Jews. Secondly, geography. They are separated by Judah, from Judah, by a region called Samaria. We already looked at that. Politically, this is a distinct Roman administration. It's not Pilate that's ruling up there. It's somebody completely different. It's one of the Herods. So Rome has a completely different political administration in Galilee. Economically, the people of Galilee actually were better off economically than those in Judah. They had a thriving agricultural sector with farming and with fishing. And you see that woven all through Jesus' stories. And so these people actually were thriving better than those under Roman occupation in Judah. And so there was some jealousy there. Culturally, they were heavily influenced by Hellenism. That is the Greek culture. Greek culture had saturated the area, and many Jews had just embraced it. In fact, many Jewish males had had a surgery to try to erase their circumcision because they were embarrassed by it. And so culturally, they were very Hellenistic. Linguistically, everybody knew if you were from Galilee, just like if everybody knows that you're from Georgia. Okay? They spoke different. They had the same language in many ways, but there was a dialect that was distinct. And so it would mark you out. When you showed up in Judah, people knew you were from Galilee because of the way you spoke the language. And then religiously, they were regarded as lax in observing the Torah and specifically the Jewish traditions. And that is one of the reasons why they target Jesus and they hate Jesus. is because they do not, Jesus and his disciples do not follow the rabbinic traditions. And yet this was kind of common amongst many people in in, in Galilee. And so therefore, the people in Galilee were more receptive to the message of Christ, to Jesus, than were those who were south in Judah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Just think about this. Now, Nazareth itself comes from a term in Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, there is a prophecy about the Messiah, that he is the branch He is the branch of David. Interestingly, the name Nazareth is a Hebraic derivative that means the branch, which is pretty interesting when you think about Jesus living there. And so many see in that when it says he is the Nazarene, that there is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 11 concerning Jesus as the branch. Other than that, There's no explicit prophetic revelation about anything with Nazareth and anything really with Galilee, uh, so to speak, in most of the prophets. And therefore, we see what is said in John chapter 7. You know, is there anything in the law? Is there anything in the prophets about Nazareth? And so, 
there was a kind of snobbery against this remote village. Also, it's interesting, these people have the distinction, the tremendous honor. These are his own people. These are the people he was raised with. And they are the first to try to kill him. He goes into the synagogue and he announces who he is. What do they do? Kudos, man. High five. The Messiah is here. What do they do? They drag him out and they try to throw him over the hill. They want to see him dead. They don't believe his message at all. Jesus moves the base of his operation from Nazareth to Capernaum. Think about Nathaniel. We'll bring the message to a close, but let's think about Nathaniel and Philip. This is an amazing story when you think about it. I hope you're back in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we see Jesus finding Philip. We know virtually nothing about this man, as I already said. Philip then goes and finds his friend Nathaniel, brings him just as Andrew had Peter, his brother, brings him and introduces him to Jesus. He says to him, we have found the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. Nathanael says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says to him, come and see. As Nathanael is walking to Jesus, he says, behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That does not mean that this guy was perfect. Right? doesn't mean that. He was a man of integrity, obviously, but I think there's something else that's woven into the story. As Nathanael is walking up to Jesus, and Jesus says, behold a man in whom is no deceit. If we would put that into kind of current terms and the way we speak, maybe what Jesus was saying this, here's a guy whom you get what you see. What you see is what you get. And Jesus just recognizing something about his character and about his personality. Because when Nathaniel hears about Jesus, he's not like, oh, I want to look into this. He just blurts out of his mouth, what? Anything good come out of Nazareth. What you see is what you get. Behold, he's right. There's, he's just, I mean, he's just up front with you. That was his character. That's what he's like. He walks up to Jesus. Can anything good, after having said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus knows what Nathanael has said. Nathanael asks him a question. How do you know me? Jesus says, in answer to that question, before Philip called you, when, I, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus has not just fed 5,000 people from a few fishes and loaves. Jesus didn't just raise a dead man. Jesus didn't just heal a leper. 
Jesus did to Nathaniel the same kind of thing that he does to us. I know you. And I know what happened under the fig tree. And that statement of the omniscience of Jesus was enough to convince this man that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the King of Israel, the Son of God. Now, what happened under the fig tree? Your guess is as good as mine. We have no idea. It most likely is some kind of crisis of faith. It's a defining moment in his life. Something has happened. Some event has transpired. Undoubtedly, Nathaniel, after this event, whatever's going on in his life, has gone and maybe he sat under a fig tree. At the beginning of the message, I had a picture of a fig tree out in the Negev. There are cultivated fig trees in Israel and there's wild ones. It's a barren country and these fig trees are like shade trees in an arid area. Many people will go and sit under them because of the shade. It's a cool place. Undoubtedly, he's sought out this fig tree. He sat under it. And there under the fig tree, he's doing business with God. Who knows what he's doing? Is he asking God to forgive him? Is he saying, God, are you even there? Are you real? But there's a crisis of faith, and it's a defining moment in his life. And when Jesus walks up to him and says, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel knows his prayer was just answered. And I just say, God sees your fig tree. And I don't know what your fig tree is. I don't know what moment that was in your life when you sat under the fig tree and there was a defining moment of a crisis of faith and you went to God and maybe like Jacob in a vow said to God, God, if you do this, if you touch me, if you bless me, if you do, you fulfill your word and you answer my prayer request and you show yourself true to the promise, I'm going to follow you. And God answers. He sees those fig tree moments. Jesus then says to him, do you believe in me because of what I just said? Hang around, buddy, and you're going to see a whole lot more. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not upon a steps, not upon a ladder, upon me. What Jesus is saying there is this. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. My friend, we are separated from heaven by a vast gulf. And I'm not talking distance. I am talking sin. And it is a chasm. And you cannot get from earth and sin to heaven and glory apart from Jesus Christ. He alone is that bridge that stretches the chasm that is formed, the gulf between God and man because of our sin. And Jesus looks to Nathaniel and he's saying, you're going to see that I span that distance. Trust in me. Jesus is the only way to God. 
That is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That is what Jesus is saying here. And if you will reach heaven, you must do so by climbing not just Jacob's ladder, but the ladder which is Christ, by putting your trust in him. Let's close in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come to set us free from sin. And I pray that if there's someone here today that has never placed their faith and trust in you and you alone, that today, Lord, your Holy Spirit would grip their heart and they would have a fig tree moment, maybe when they leave here. And they go and they sit under their fig tree and they do business with you. Show yourself, Lord Jesus, to be the King of Israel, the Son of God. And so we pray in Jesus' name.